Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Failed Critic Podcast. I'm Steve Norman. I'm joined again by Jerry McCauley. Hello. And James Diamond. Hello. Uh, this week we'll be looking at the new Marvel Comics movie, Avengers Assemble, as well as uh, our triple bill feature, this time focusing on uh, our favourite films with child protagonists. And again, the good, the bad and the ugly to finish the podcast where we look at the films we've been watching this week. Um, James, we're back again. So something must have gone right last week. Yeah, um, I, I'm actually quite genuinely surprised by how well it was received. Because uh, obviously, I think we had fun recording it, but it was just, it was an experiment and it went quite well. Uh, the the gents uh, on the Football 365 gave us some good feedback. Uh, we got over 50 downloads in our first week, which I, I'm actually very, very genuinely happy with. Um, anyone who wants to catch up on previous ones, if this is the first one you're listening to, then you can find us now on iTunes. We've got our official iTunes listing, so search for The Failed Critic on iTunes. You can find us at failedcritic.com. L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Uh, you can find us on thefailedcritic.wordpress.com and also on Twitter with at thefailedcritic. And if you want to talk about the podcast, then use the hashtag, uh, hashtag failedcritic, which so far I'm the only person in the universe who's used it, but I'm, I'm going to make it stick. It's, it's going to work somehow. Yeah, we even had a download from Texas. Yeah, we've, we've actually got, we've got four American fans out there. Hello. Hello, we America. Are. Um, we've got a Canadian person. I, I say fans, they might have just clicked on the wrong link or something, but they might have listened Sweden. to it and thought it was rubbish. Yeah, exactly. I they, doubt they, it. We though. might actually have, have nemesis now. Yeah. Is that the plural of nemesis? No we we may have a, a Canadian nemesis. Um, who knows? Uh, it would, you've got to think it positively. Yeah. <laughs> break in America quicker than the Beatles did. So, uh, it's very true. <laughs> <laughs> and, and <laughs> Australia as well. So we've hit three continents. Um, we South America letting us down at the moment, as is Africa. But we need yeah, we're, to, we're getting there. We need to learn more languages to to access Possibly. these places. Uh, anyway, before we start our review on Avengers Assemble, we just is there any sort of movie news at the moment that's exciting you uh, about upcoming movies uh, that might be in the pipeline, might be being released soon, or you know, planned releases in the future. Uh, well, I've I've seen 
two trailers this week, but I'm actually gonna I'm gonna keep my powder dry on those for our, for next week's segment about movies. I'm really excited about this summer, and I know this is a film podcast, but there's two books that I've been reading that I absolutely love, and I've been talking to people about. I just want um, there's this book that I found in a secondhand shop, but I've checked. It's available on Amazon. It's still in print. It's called The Greatest Sci-Fi Movies Never Made, and it's by David Hughes, and it charts the history of films and scripts that are basically been abandoned in development hell so you've got um it's got the story of steven spielberg's night skies which is apparently straw dogs with aliens uh why have i why did that not get made that's happened um terry gilliam's take on watchmen which would have been fantastic uh ridley scott directing arnie in i am legend and it's just basically all these stories of uh films that nearly happened and scripts that nearly happened and and it's just the whole book of what if absolutely fantastic book uh, so I'd highly recommend people try and track that down. And um, I also picked up this week Darth Vader and Son. It's a fantastic little comic book imagining a universe where Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker have a father-son relationship, <laughs> uh, which I thought quite interesting with this week's. Uh, I've seen a lot of films with kids in, not just for our triple bill this week. And, and it was my daughter's 18-month birthday. It's a stupid birthday to celebrate, some people say, but I, I found it quite... It was quite moving for me yesterday. So I've, I've been really in parent mode. And this is a perfect book if you're a parent and or a Star Wars fan. So the two things that excited me this week were books, unfortunately. But there we go. Uh, how about yourself, Jerry? Um, the only thing that really interested me was um, there was a big controversy. Well, big controversy, relatively. Um, the Hobbit, there was a 10-minute section of The Hobbit shown at CinemaCon, which seems to be their sort of conference where they all go and talk amongst themselves all the the big names in cinema um and there was quite a lot of negative reviews from it um because it's been shot um unlike most films that have ever been made uh, which is shot at 24 frames per second uh peter jackson has decided that the way forward is doubling that and doing it at 48 frames per second uh, and loads of people were basically saying it looked really terrible because actually now you can see that it looks like a film set rather than a world, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, so there's now too much detail and we've gone too high definition. Um, and you can see that it's a set rather than uh, maintaining that illusion, which I thought was, was, was pretty interesting. Yeah, I also saw that James Cameron was there telling cinemas that they now need to upgrade all their projectors so that they can show 48 frames per second. I think James Cameron, George Lucas, again, uh, they did this three years ago. They told all the cinemas to get this new projector, which means you can watch Avatar and the new Star Wars and stuff like that. It seems every three or four years they keep going and saying, buy all this technology that we've been helping to develop. It It seems a little bit of a, a con to me. And that's why people are paying £8 to go and see a film and probably twice that much for a big box of popcorn. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was one, there was an interesting quote in an article I read about it, which was um, a lady called Amy Miles, who's the CEO of Regal Entertainment Group, who are responsible for running a load of multiplexes in the US. And she said that they're going to they're gonna take up uh, this new technology. She says, we have to do everything we can to widen that experience gap between what you see in the theatre and what you see at home, which I thought was quite an interesting thing. And they they recognise that they need to do way more than you could do at home because otherwise people just don't go to the cinema at all. So, Yeah, it's I also saw um, a cinema chain in America have said that to combat the rising cost of 3D tickets, they're going to cut the price of 3D, 3D tickets but raise the price of 2D tickets to pay for it, which I found, again, <laughs> if that starts happening over here, I'm going to kick off massively. 
that makes no sense. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, I can understand where this push is coming from because piracy is a big issue and they do have to try and do everything they can to stop people pirating films. And one of those things is extra technology in cinemas. Um, but I think it's, lot- it's not even piracy though. It, it's, it's as much as anything. It's people have, you know, now they have big TVs, big full mm. HD TVs and yeah. rooms with Blu-rays and everything. People think, well, I can get really good quality picture at home. So uh, I'll not get ripped off from me popcorn. Yeah, uh, it's a very good point, actually. And uh, although we'll talk about the Avengers, and but the experience I had at the Avengers, I couldn't have had at home. Uh, and it did actually, this week, made me fall back in love with going to the cinema again, which I haven't I felt for a long time. <laughs> well, well yep. as we're on the subject, this week our new release film review was Avengers Assemble, directed by Joss Whedon. Uh, whose film we reviewed last week, The Cabin in the Woods. He done well last week with our first ever review. And I think he's done well this week as well by by the sounds of uh, what we've all been saying before we started recording. Uh, it tells the story of a group of superheroes joining together to fight Loki uh, and his army from outer space who are trying to invade and destroy the Earth. Um, so, yeah, what did we think of the film? I loved it. I thought it was really good. I'm, good I'm, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let everybody else come in and say how much they love it first before we go into any detail. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, last week you already knew about my uh, obsession with Joss Whedon. And yet again, uh, I, I absolutely loved it as well. And yeah, I think I, I, I imagine you also loved it, Steve. It was, it was brilliant. I mean, some superhero film, I mean, both Batman films that have been released recently, the most recent two with, um, mm-hmm. Christian Bell have been, have been brilliant. The, the first of the, the new Spider-Man films was quite good. The other two were let down. The new Superman films are let down. Um, some of the films involving the superheroes in this Avengers film haven't been brilliant, although I did enjoy both Iron Man's and, you know, some of them haven't been great by any stretch. This film, you know, a lot of the problems you get with films where it's kind of an ensemble cast as well. You get people mm. trying to upstage each other, people trying to get the best lines and the best of the script and the best of the action. This, it tended to balance itself out pretty well. You also had the right mix of sort of the build-up and the end action scene. Some films like this, they, it ends up with just a... Transformers is pretty guilty of it, but it's no surprise with who the director of those films were, but it ends up just being one big battle where you can't really understand what's going on. There's a lot going on, and it ends up getting boring. And it wasn't the case in this. It was kind of the right balance between the end battle and the rest of the film, the build-up. Yeah, I agree entirely. I thought one of the best things about it was they, they did manage to give, even though there was there was six of them, they gave everyone a load of screen time. They gave a lot of detail to their background, but it wasn't like contrived, like going from one to the other. It, it seemed quite natural the way they managed to introduce everyone. And like the writing was just really, really efficient. I thought everything was, was needed and useful. There wasn't anything spare, which took up any time so that they could just get every, everyone in, get plenty of screen time for all the characters and get lots of dialogue for all of them as well. It wasn't like there was any one dimensional characters in it, which I thought was a really impressive achievement. It's probably, yeah. So it's probably worth mentioning who the superheroes are and who, uh, played them. You've obviously got, uh, the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. who brings them all together. Nick Fury, played by Samuel L. Jackson. 
Interesting yeah, got, point got, on Samuel L. I, uh, I read this week. He's now the highest grossing actor of all time, um, I mean, which I found. I, I think that's. Oh, I love Samuel L. Jackson, but yeah, he he has been in films which have earned the most money of all um, time. And uh, God bless Samuel L. So obviously, Iron Man, played by Robert Downey Jr., uh, Captain America by Chris Evans, Doctor Bruce Banner slash the Hulk by Mark Ruffalo, uh, Thor, played by Chris Hemsworth was also in our review from last week. Black Widow, played by Scarlett Johansson, and Hawkeye, played by Jeremy Renner. Yeah, and then, of course, um, I thought I thought they were all good, to be fair, but I thought the best performer of all of them was uh, Tom Hiddleston playing Loki. I thought he was the standout. He uh, was fantastic. In the whole film. Yeah, Tom Hiddleston. Um, I, I've not seen Thor, um, so I, I don't know about his previous performance. I can only go on the performance here. Um he he had a kind of mean, hungry look about him. He he had a very definite presence different to the superheroes. He brought something otherworldly to his role, actually, I think. I know part of that will have been the makeup, but I think his performance was otherworldly. Um, he had some great lines. Um, he actually, he said Mewling Quim at one point, which... Fantastic I insult. Like, as soon as it set, was set, I was like, I'm writing that down, you Mewling Quim. Um, <laughs> that is the best insult I've ever heard in a superhero film. Full you, stop. You won't find a better insult in an eighteen-rated film. No, it, it, was, it was a very Shakespearean insult for a mm. for a Marvel film. Yes. Was, <laughs> pretty mad. He was he was good in Thor. I have seen Thor uh, this yeah. week in preparation for the Avengers, and he was good, but he he wasn't as good as he is now. I mean, you understand a bit more about his character mm. for those who've seen Thor. He's not actually. Thor's brother, he's Thor's adopted brother, um, and uh, it's a long story, but he, he's good in that, and he's given a bit of time, but he's not got the same sort of presence, I think part of that direction, I think they really focused on making him this sort of aloof character, he was really yeah. dark, rooting all the time, and, and he was always given shots where he's alone, even in groups of people, so I thought he was really good. Yeah. Also about where, because I read up on, uh, it, I couldn't. I just read up on Wikipedia. I didn't have time to watch films this week. But um, there was a fantastic line from Chris Hemsworth as Thor about kind of where Loki came from, whether or not he was his brother, and so on, <laughs> which was such a Joss Whedon line, and it 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 got proper laughter in the cinema. Um, there were a few times there was spontaneous applause in the cinema that I was in for certain bits of this film. Um, which I, I haven't seen for years. It was what I loved about this film was it is funnier than most comedies that come out of Hollywood these days. There were enough funny lines in there for me to say, to, for it to have been a um, a Will Ferrell film or something like that. But uh, re really good crafted funny lines. Um, a lot of them for uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Downey Jr., Iron yeah, Man. Who's, I mean, Tony Stark is amazing. But I mean that that was one point I was going to make that in sort of every film where there's a group of good guys, whether it's a film like this or Star Wars as a collective, I know I drew a parallel with Star Wars between Captain America and um, Iron Man or um, Steve Rogers and Tony Stark. They're basically they're both good guys. They're both on the side of good, but they're completely different. One sort of the clean cut, you know, straight edge, mm. perfect image. And the other one's arrogant, cocky, up himself, but they're both on the same side. And it's kind of like, you know, Captain America's like Luke Skywalker, <laughs> Iron Man's like Han Solo. Yeah. And kind of when you're growing up, until you get to 
puberty, you want to be Luke Skywalker or Captain America. You want to be the good guy. You want to be the one with the cool suit and the, you know, the, the Jedi, essentially. When you hit puberty and you start liking girls, you think, I'd rather be Han Solo or Iron Man because they're actually pretty cool. They get all the best lines. They get the women. They're pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's a really good dynamic, actually, between those two, as, as well, because obviously Captain America comes from an older, more innocent, patriotic time, and he's been thrust into a completely different world. Although well, Chris Evans ha- handled that role really well. Um, and what I really loved, actually, and it was a symbol of how well put together this film was, not only did it not feel like two hours, 20 something minutes, um, and like Jerry was saying, not a single second of it is wasted. Uh, there's no buffer anywhere in this film. Um, uh, it goes zips along at a great pace. But um, having a look on Internet Movie Database, there are 14 great named actors who have good lines at some point in this. It's a ridiculously big ensemble cast. And I think, yeah, we've spoken about the people playing the Avengers, but there's some really, really good standout performances from the kind of supporting cast. I thought... Um, Clark Gregg as Agent Coulson was brilliant. He had some fantastic lines. Mm. Um, Kobe Smulders as Maria Hill not only had a few good lines, but I think I'm in love with her now. Um, I absolutely, uh, I, I was blown away by her. um, She's, uh, I'm going to ask her to marry me, basically. That's that. If my wife lets me, I want to marry Kobe Smulders. But even Gwyneth Paltrow got some really good lines and she got a bit more, um, than you would have expected from this film. I expected a bit of a cameo. And I didn't even realise that Paul Bettany played Jarvis, the voice of um, uh, Tony Stark's, uh, like, in Super Bowl. computer thing, yeah. Yeah, uh, and you just, th- just looking through the cast list. Uh, you know, Jeremy Renner didn't really have too much to do. Um, but, you know, he's... I'm looking forward to seeing him in the new Bourne films now, um, on the back of this film, basically, because I thought he, he did really well with the small amount that he had. Um, but what I think we have skirted around is who completely stole the film. We haven't really mentioned him so far. And I know that, Steve, you were really, uh, you know, really excited about his performance. Yeah, Mark Ruffalo is, is the Incredible Hulk or Dr. Bruce Banner. He was fantastic in, well, in both roles, if that makes sense, as both Bruce Banner and the Hulk. The Hulk, the character was just brilliant, stole the show, had funny moments, had sort of, you know, important moments was, you know, great action moments as well. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I thought the whole way he was written in really nicely, that was like a nice way to tie the group together as well. You know, the way they used that dynamic and there was a the tension between him possibly turning into the Hulk and just destroying them all at any moment and the way they were all on edge quite a lot of the time and talking to him differently and mentioning it and making jokes about it. I thought that was that was really well done and it was a really good way of, creating that group atmosphere between all the main characters. Um, and he, he did have some, some really funny lines, like some really good self-deprecating humour all the way through. Yeah, because uh, I think the last thing I saw Mark Ruffalo in was uh, Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind. And it, it he's just really come on as an actor. Uh, and he had a real kind of quiet dignity about his role, uh, which I really enjoyed. And it what I found was also great was the CGI version of the Hulk um, you could tell it was Mark Ruffalo as well they they yeah. made it look enough like him so that you believe the transformation whereas kind of previous Hulk films it's just been either Ed Norton or um, Eric Banner and then all of a sudden it's a big green thing um, but you, you felt the connection between the two and you felt it was Mark Ruffalo playing Hulk as well yeah 
Um, I can't believe it. Have you not seen Shutter Island? He was he was in that like last year. No, it's on my list to watch. Actually, it's on my it's on my IMDb list. Kind of down near the low two fifties somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he he's he's quite similar. I was thinking in in this film, he was playing quite a similar sort of character. The sort of you know, he he makes little quips and and has little lines, and he's but he's quite intelligent behind it all. I thought I thought it was quite similar, but at the same time, he really did make it his own. And like Steve says, he completely stole the film mm. all the way through. I thought Scarlett Hansen as well was there, a bit of an unlikely scene sealer a lot of the time. Her backside yeah, I... definitely was. <laughs> <laughs> I I agree because I didn't know really much about Black Widow, and when I saw the original Avengers trailer. Uh, the bit where, you know, the one that everyone's seen on TV, um, uh, Iron Man says, I'm bringing the party to you. That massive thing comes around the corner. Um, and it's the six of them kind of like in a circle and the camera pans around them and they're all getting their special gear out. And she just loads a, like a Colt 45. And I was like, well, what's her, her deal then? Mm. Um, but it, it's very different because she is quite a, um, a subtle superhero. There's, there's not much in the way of, um, crash bang wallop type special skills so she didn't have a lot to work with there but i thought she did really really well actually and i've not always been a huge scarlett johansson fan but she she fitted in nicely and i love the scene the scenes at the beginning where they go together putting the putting the team together i mean you get you get that in all films of this ilk where it's you know a group of people have to come together whether it's my, one of my favourites, Mighty Ducks 2, or whether it's something like, you know, whether it's the awful new A-Team movie with Liam Neeson. But Are they... we going to mention Mighty Ducks 2 in every podcast? I'm going to try. Uh, I'll tell you that. It didn't, it didn't... How many obscure references you can make to Mighty Ducks film? It didn't, it didn't make my child protagonist shortlist, but anyway. But, but you know what I mean? This, it's that, when they sort of bring everyone together, of diff- you know, they've all got different yeah. talents and abilities, but they need, and it was just, brilliantly done it wasn't it no one really got overdone or over exaggerated none was sort of just put to the side and just goes oh yeah he said he's gonna turn up it's yeah you know and what was great i thought was um they carried that through so that in the big climactic battle um you do see the avengers having to work together Mm. you do see the fact that their different skill sets are important you know it's not just um it's not like a super group they put together. They do need each other and they do need their very different skills. Um, and, and, I, and I think that was worked in really well. And, and I love the fact even Samuel L. Jackson gets to get involved in some action as well. He doesn't just have to be the kind of black man in charge he, like he is he, in the Star Wars films probably, and he's in Triple X. <laughs> he probably wouldn't have signed up if he wasn't allowed to kick some ass. Exactly. Um, so, no, or play I, golf. Again, We've we've spoken about how I, I just want to mention the 3D actually because I had to go and see this in 3D because of mm. the timings. Um, I do want to say though, despite the fact I had to pay a fortune um, because I also had to get a premier seat so I could make sure I was at least in the middle of the screen so the 3D worked properly. I didn't really notice the 3D. Now I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing because I know it was a retrofitted 3D film and some of those have looked horrendous. The, first, the opening kind of five, ten minutes, I was like, oh, that's a nice effect. A bit like I did with Hugo, actually. That's a nice effect. It's not completely ruined it for me. And after that, I was thinking, I, I can't really remember the 3D adding to it. It didn't detract from the film, I don't think. Uh, I didn't come out thinking, oh, I've got 3D ruined that. 
but I don't think it added anything to the film whatsoever. And I, I was wondering afterwards, how many of those shots were actually in 3D or was I just watching them through slightly darkened glasses? It seemed a little bit... So I wouldn't say the 3D ruins it, but don't bother going to see it in 3D specially because I really don't think it adds anything to the uh, the film at all. And also, I, I just had a really weird experience where I had noisy people eating next to me, um, it was a packed cinema. You know me, I like to go on my own middle of the day when there's no one else there. However, it felt like a cinematic event. And I, I enjoyed being in a community of people who were cheering and who were hollering at the same time at the screen. And I haven't been, I haven't seen that for so long. And I think this film deserved it. So um, I will now be happy to go and see future blockbusters with a group of people and i've not done that for years so that that's just my personal experience my my personal experience was similar but yet had an entirely different outcome in that <laughs> i was in a packed cinema full of people eating noisily it was the obligatory guy who smelled of bo as well oh, um you should have had a shower before you went jerry <laughs> <laughs> i'll pitch him you hit him out the park yeah. um <laughs> It was, you know, noisy kids, people, but people just seemed to like have a chat, like through, oh, when the film started, people just like chatting away, particularly the guy next to us. Fortunately, I was on the end of the row so my yeah. with most of their chattering, but, um, there was a lot of people and even, um, you know, kids talking, but parents as well. It wasn't just oh. like little kids asking questions and people did say, you know, shut up. And I was, I was on the point of telling people to shut up and, and they went quiet. But the thing that struck me most was, You'd have like an action scene, and I thought they 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 did balance it well between mm. action scenes and dialogue. But a lot of the time, we'd have like an extended action period, and then uh, it's, they they talk, and you know you're establishing things. That's where the storyline comes in, really. And then people would see that as an opportunity to like have a bit of a chat amongst themselves. <laughs> and it was like, can you not concentrate beyond like once things aren't blowing up or people aren't punching and kicking each other? Once they start talking, it's like, oh well, I can't can't deal with concentrating on this anymore. I, so, I did get a little bit of that. And it's a bit like when you go to a gig and the band uh, the band suddenly plays like a slower one. And that's when people decide to talk and go off to the bar. And you're like, no, they're still playing songs of it. I know exactly what you mean, yeah. I don't even like people talking when I've gone to watch a football match because I usually got an opinion that I don't like. I just don't want to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I could quite happily go to the football with 30,000 people there and listen to it in peace and quiet. But, I mean, it, it did combine probably everything you'd want from that kind of film, the right amount of dialogue, character progression and storyline with the right amount of humour and sort of one-liners and, and the right amount of all-out action and battles and them all using their you know, powers and abilities to... And some genuine pathos at times as well. Mm. Um, some, you know, some, some genuinely, uh, you know, some characters face some real dilemmas and there was some real moments where, you know, I didn't cry, but I was, I was thinking, oh, my, my lip might have trembled slightly. It, it, I think it had absolutely everything. And I, I, I was looking forward to The Dark Knight Rises the most this summer. This was one of the films that I was also looking forward to. Now, I honestly am struggling to see The Dark Knight Rises being a more, certainly more, a more enjoyable film. It won't, this. it won't be as funny because they've written Batman to be that way to sort of have very little humour in it. As good as the mm. films are, you're not going to get yeah. many laughs out of it. No. You, you know, I mean, in a way, Batman and Iron Man are quite similar characters and they've basically got their powers because they're really rich and pretty clever. Yeah. 
in, in, you're not going to get the same kind of quips you are Very out of personality. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really looking forward to the Dark Knight, but I'm, I'm a big Batman fan as well. So that was, that was another thing. It was quite surprising. Um, the difference between Batman and Marvel films was underlined by the fact that uh, Captain America happily picked up a gun and shot, started shooting people at one point, which uh, <laughs> you will not get in a Batman film. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know what you're getting with a superhero film, don't you really? There's going to be some kind of crisis and it's going to look like the hero or heroes can't overcome it and then they somehow overcome it. And there's nothing surprising really in terms of the overall narrative that's going on. But the interesting thing is how they do it and, and what those particular crises are and, and how they overcome it. And I thought they did that really well. And it was, you know, quite different to your sort of standard fare. It, it was more engaging than your, than your normal superhero film. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, and it did, and I, as soon as I got back, I posted on the forum, um, why couldn't Joss Whedon have done the Transformers films? That, mm. that was the first thing that came to my head was, all big action blockbuster films should be like this. We've proved that we can make them like this. Why are there still people churning out Dross? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, did get a cameo from Stan Lee shooed into the film. Yeah, I missed it. it. Where was he? I missed yeah. it. Oh, no, I I'm not, 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 really. not ruining that. Like, <laughs> not, not ruining anything about the story. Like telling you who the cameo in no. the cabin in the woods was, which obviously no. we still won't, just in case you haven't seen it yet. But uh, yeah, <laughs> he managed to shoo himself, shoo all himself uh, into this. He was on the news. Let's let's just yeah. say that you'll remember. Oh, okay, oh, I missed that. Yeah. Well, I, I am actually planning to go back and watch it again so I'll keep an eye out for him and also I would just say again not spoiling anything but don't just get up and leave as yeah. soon as the credits start rolling yeah. um, stay in your seat I mean I, d- I doubt we'd be spoiling anything by saying that the Avengers do save the day and no. I doubt I'm spoiling anything too much by saying it is set up for a sequel yeah. <laughs> um, so stay in your seat. Yes. Yeah. Don't leave before the but when the credits start come up stay there for another five minutes or so Unless you were like me and you're on the end of the row because you're on crutches and you have to leave because everyone on your row gets up and you can't be asked standing up and sitting down again. When it hurts, you just stand up and sit down. Oh, uh, so we'll, we'll have a chat afterwards. If you don't know what happened there. Yeah. <laughs> Any, anyway, um, yes, the event, Avengers Assemble, um, go and see it. It's definitely worth watching. Not reviewed a bad film yet. I'm, um, yeah. I'm quite, look, I'm quite looking forward to our first new release we review, which we all hate. Yeah. In I a way. I, I might specifically choose one that I think is going to cause some issues. <laughs> we'll just go for like the new Zac Efron film or something that, yeah. we, something that we know <laughs> we're all just going to despise. We'll be back in part two with um, our feature, Triple Bill, and uh, this week looking at our favourite films with child protagonists. Welcome back to part two, uh, the bit of the podcast we like to call Triple Bill. Last week, you'll remember, if you listened, we did our Desert Island movies, where we just picked the three movies that we would each be able to watch on repetition if we were stranded on a desert island. This week, the theme is child protagonist, so each of our three favourite films in which 
obviously a child is the protagonist. Uh, I'll start with Jerry. Right. Um, do you want all three, or do you just want one at a time? One at a time. Right. Uh, first one, I'll get it out of the way. You all know it's coming. I talked about it last week. Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> um, one of my favourite films ever. Um, it's centred around, uh, I think she's nine off the top of my head, a nine-year-old girl, uh, just after the Spanish Civil War, if you weren't listening last week. Um, it's all to do with fantasy and childhood and the loss of innocence and whether reality is real and who decides what reality is real and whether our universe is all that we've got. So without going into too much detail, as I raved about it last week, that is not just one of the best films ever, but um, certainly, in my opinion, the best child protagonist film. Yeah, and I've still not seen it. <laughs> I, I, I didn't say, mainly because I was having to, what well, I've been to the cinema actually three times this week, which is almost unheard of for me. Uh, and also because I knew this was coming up and you told me if I watched it, it would be on my list. And I thought, well, it's going to be on your list. So if I don't watch it, I can come up with three non-Pan's Labyrinth choices. <laughs> That's my logic. However, I am planning to watch it in the I, next week. Or so. I have seen it. I did really enjoy the film, but I've kind of taken a different tack with my choices, which you obviously see. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, there's definitely nothing quite like Pan's Labyrinth in there. Uh, what was your second Second tip, Jerry. My second one. Um, I'm taking a bit of a liberty here. It's more of a. It starts as a childhood one, and it's more of a coming of age one. But um, I didn't want. I was refusing to to put Home Alone in there because I thought that other people would put it in there. Um, <laughs> and that probably none of us have. <laughs> yeah, we've probably all done the same thing and tried to avoid putting it in. But um, this was my way of avoiding it. Um, it's Persepolis, which I don't know if any of you have mm-hmm. seen. Yeah, yeah, great film. Um, it's a lovely French-Iranian animation, uh, animated tale of an Iranian girl coming of age uh, from the, I think it's 1979, the start of the Islamic Revolution in, in, in Iran, from the 70s onwards, and it's her, you know, slowly realising that the world that she's growing up in is quite totalitarian and restrictive and seeking that freedom, and then she, you know, she interacts with the world. Um, it's really nice to look at. I think it was originally a graphic novel, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, mm. I think yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah, um, and it's just a really good film. Really, that was that was my criteria, <laughs> but it's not strictly speaking a child all the way through. She she does grow up, but I like the fact that it still retained this spirit of the little girl that you meet first on. That is sort of a clear character trait all the way through. So yeah, it's more about her retaining her childishness as well, which which was. I thought I could bend the, the rules slightly. Oh, I, I think I'll allow it, yeah. <laughs> um, and my third one, I'm going to have to go for an honourable mention to My Neighbour Totoro, which um, was also put on uh, a lot of people's Desert Island Discs last week on the forum. Uh, I'm going to give that an honourable mention and go for its its sister film, Grave of the Fireflies, which I absolutely love. Don't know if anybody's seen it. No, no. Oh dear. Um, <laughs> basically, uh, it's a Studio Ghibli, so it's, you know, Japanese animation. Um, and it's about a young lad. Uh, he's probably an early teenager, but, and he's maybe, uh, well, I might be taking liberty thinking he's an early teenager, but he's a young lad and he's looking after his sister. He's about four or five, maybe six. Um, during World War II in Japan, 
as the Allies are bombing Japan. So it's towards the end of the war. Um, and his mo- their mum dies in a bombing raid early on in the film. I'm not spoiling anything by saying that. And they have to look after themselves. And he's trying to look after his sister, but he's also still a child. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's kind of that battle between holding on to your childhood and also having to look after a child. So he, he can't quite retain his, his child childishness because he has to be responsible for it. But at the same time, she still is constantly reminding him of all the, you know, the things that make a child tick, really. Um, I'm not giving anything away when I say that you know that it's going to end badly for them because the very first line is um, him narrating it and saying, I can't remember the date, but he says, this is the day that I died. So you know that it's going to end badly for them. But nonetheless, it is the only film that has ever made me cry. Wow. So. I wish there was only one film that had ever made me cry. I've cried on <laughs> The Simpsons before, but yeah, we'll, we'll get onto that at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> well, see, the thing is, I said this to my girlfriend and watched it, I watched it, and then I said, oh, it made me cry, it's the only film that made me cry, and she said, I can't believe you cried at a cartoon. <laughs> like, like so much worse I didn't cry at real people just pointing and laughing at you and on the verge of breaking up with you over it <laughs> uh, but it's a fantastic film so regardless of whether it's a child protagonist film it's just fantastic uh, James how about yourself what was your what was, it, was your first pick well, my, my thinking was, like I said before, I wanted children and not teens. Um, but don't edit that in use against me in court law there, Steve. That could sound really bad taken out of context. Um, but a few people said, oh, yeah, how can you differentiate between children and teens? I think my, my idea is a teen movie is about what is about teenagers, most importantly, but also about what it is to be a teenager in that era. So, you know, um, you've got American Graffiti is a teen movie. It's about teenagers in that era of America. I think you can have teenagers, um, but their story needs to be about something more than just being a teenager. However, I think all of mine are about children, to be honest here. Um, my first pick, actually, is I'm not, it's not one of the best films ever. But it actually really resonates with my childhood um, and about how I first came to love film. It's a, a film from 2007, a UK film called Son of Rambo. Uh, it's directed oh, by yeah. Garth, yeah, directed by Garth Jennings, who did uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's set in a long English summer in the early 80s, and it tells the story of a young lad called Will Proudfoot. I think he's 11 or 12. Um, He's a father's child who uh, lives in a very strict religious community. So he's, had, he's not been allowed to watch television or films. And he meets the local school uh, troublemaker called Lee Carter. Um, and he shows Will a pirate copy of Rambo First Blood. And using Lee Carter's video camera, they decide to make their own version of Rambo called Son of Rambo. Uh, and they spend the summer making this video um this film to enter into a competition basically you got a load of kind of british classic school cliches you got there's a french exchange going on at the time and there's an outrageous um french character called didier who comes in who's completely years ahead of everyone in terms of fashion and taste and attitude and things like that there's a bit of corporal punishment going on there's people taping songs off the top 40 to play in the senior comment you know it really sums up 80s english school and it's the one film of my three which resonates most with my childhood basically i think it and also it really beautifully encapsulates that moment when you first fall in love with a film will proudfoot sees rambo and then after that he 
he sees these weird cartoon images and he, it, it goes into his all, his imagination where he imagines being the son of Rambo. And I remember seeing action films when I was young and how I'd think about them for days and imagine myself in various sequels and things like that. Maybe it's just me. Um, it brilliant, brilliant period detail through it. Lovely soundtrack. Uh, and like I said, it just feels like my school holidays would have been if I'd known someone like Lee Carter. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed Son of Rambo as well. Although I will point out, as, as much as it is really good at, at recreating the 80s, it is quite universal as well. It's not just one of them that you can watch if you grew up in the 80s. I mean, I grew up in the 90s, but it's still mm. very, very relevant. And I think anybody will be able to relate to it. So don't think that it's just for people who grew up in the 80s. It really is a very, very good film and it has a lot of more universal stuff about growing up. Yeah, it's quite sweet. And you can, uh, about two thirds of the way through, you can see where it's probably going to go. Um, and it, it, you know, it's probably a little bit sweet at the end, but uh, it's definitely worth a watch. And it's currently streaming uh, on Love Film. So if you've got a Love Film account, you can watch it for free. And how about your second choice? Okay, second choice. Um, I've I've gone really far back here. Uh, I'm I'm going to pick it. I'm known full well that neither of you two like musicals. Um, I've gone for the 1939. I've gone for the Wizard of Oz. Um, it yeah. has a hundred percent certified fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It may not be the these days the best film out there, but I think it is such a cinematic. Uh, it. it it is a masterpiece in it, in the sense that uh, the period in which it was created, it's been created by about five different directors there, but it's this mad, colourful world. If you don't know the story, Judy Garland plays Dorothy. Uh, she's plucked from a simple farm existence in Kansas and transported by a hurricane to the world of Oz where she accidentally kills a witch and then has to find her way back and she meets a, uh, a tin man and a, a cowardly lion and a scarecrow without a brain. Um, Everyone, I think most people have seen this film. I actually watched it again the other night, uh, and I decided for the first time ever to try the Dark Side of the Rainbow experiment. Have you heard about this? Yeah, where uh, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd syncs up perfectly yeah. with The Wizard of Oz, allegedly. Yeah. But and, you're going to tell us the truth now. And, well, it, <laughs> it actually does. To an extent, it does sync up. Apparently, it is pure coincidence. Um, but, the, you know, there's a few bits like the... Um, at one point, Roger Gilmore sings uh, Balanced on the Biggest Wave as Dorothy falls off a fence. The great gig in the sky starts as the tornado appears. My prob- my main problem was I was watching it on uh, PAL, which is actually 25... 25- We're really going into quite technical stuff in this podcast. It's quite nice. Uh, 25 frames per second, whereas the American version is uh, screened at 24 frames per second. So the film speeds up a little bit and loses its sync about 20 minutes through. Um <laughs> And I thought it was actually a bit of a coincidence. So I decided to, I then went back to the beginning and I watched it. Um, I synced it up with Shed Seven's, uh, 1996 album, A Maximum High to see if it was purely just coincidence. And it is sadly. So, uh, yeah, nothing. Shed Seven's Maximum High does not sync up with that. So don't try that. Try it with Dark Side of the Moon. Um, but yeah, Dorothy, she's, um, she's a, a young child who gets it. And I think this is, the child protagonist story, you know, they get removed from their comfortable existence and plucked into uh, something that is completely out of their scope of existence, but they touch that world, uh, and she touches that world with her innocence and things like that. It, it's an old classic, it's got brilliant songs, and it's well worth 90 minutes of everyone's time, in my opinion. And your final film? 
my final film I only saw earlier this year for the first time. Uh, I and it blew me away. It, I watched it, turned it off, and went to bed. And then for the next week, I was thinking about it over and over again. It's from 2008. It's directed by Thomas Alfredson. It's Let the Right One In. I don't know if either of you have seen Let the Right One In. Oh yeah, no. uh, yeah. Um, okay, it's a vampire love story between children. Um, it, and it's more about friendship more than anything else. It's set against the backdrop of 1980s Sweden. It's very dark. It's pretty grim in places. Oscar, 12-year-old boy, struggling to fit in at school. He's regularly being bullied. And he befriends a young girl, uh, Eli, who, um, Ellie, sorry, who has um, moved into his apartment block. Um, she's moved in with a strange adult who's looking after her. And um, quite quickly into the film, we realise that he is killing people for some reason. Um, he's not very good at it. He kills people. Uh, the one thing that really clumsy, frustrates yeah. me is he's, he's terrible. I don't know how she's got along this long with him as her, her guardian because he, he kills someone, strings them up in the woods and then gets disturbed and just leaves a dead body draining blood in the woods. You know? uh, he gets caught poking around outside a, a school like, like a local paedophile would kind of thing. So in the end, she has to take matters into her own hands and starts killing off some of the local populace. Um I won't go into the ending, but basically her and uh, Oscar form a, a real bond, a real childhood bond. Uh, it's a beautiful story. It's not hugely scary. Um, there are a few jumpy moments, but the, the last 10 minutes has stuck with me, and I've thought about it most days since I watched that film. It, it's haunting. It's beautifully shot, and you can see where Alfredson was going to go with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which he directed afterwards. Um, no, no I, I absolutely adore this film. It's my favourite vampire film. It, ha it really sticks to vampire lore. There's, you know, it really sticks rigidly to it without any of the sexy frills of capes and fangs and stuff like that. It's about a young girl who has to drink blood to survive over 200 years. It's as simple as that. It's a beautiful story. So you, you're telling me that you prefer this to Twilight? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so. I think this is, this is how vampires should be portrayed on screen, definitely. Yes, it's it's basically it's everything that Twilight should be in theory, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's a lovely film. Apparently, the book is is quite a lot more brutal as well, and has quite a yeah. I'm I'm, I'm interested to read the book. Right. And apparently, there's a lot more on her guardian as well, and about yeah what he is and things like that. But no, it's a it's a great great film. It was remade quite recently. I think it's called Let Me In. Um, American remake, which apparently isn't a bad remake, but it's one of those cases where you just watch the original. There's no point watching yeah. the remake. Um, I don't have any desire to watch the remake. I'm not going to lie. It's really good though. I, I, I'm going to say it was it was one of my uh, honourable mentions. Was like, oh, right. okay. Well, from week one, we know how much thought and effort I like to put into these lists, how much reasoning and everything that goes into it. I want to give some honourable mentions first for films that were quite close but didn't quite make it. Big with Tom Hanks. I nearly put Big in as well, yeah, definitely, because even though he's a man for most of it, he's yeah. still a child. He's so, a yeah. child in a man's body. Jack, yeah. which had Robin Williams in it as the boy who aged really fast and was like, oh. was like ten years old but looked like he was forty. And that was made by Francis Ford Coppola as well, wasn't it? That yeah, bizarre. Yeah, was it? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Coppola directed wow. Jack. <laughs> uh, yeah, obviously. All three Mighty Ducks films were quite close to making it. I probably could have just put all of them down. 
Uh, start... I was expecting a list of number one, Mighty Ducks. Yeah. Number two, Mighty Ducks two. Yeah. <laughs> number three, Mighty Ducks three. Uh, Stand by me, Holly on Stroke the Kids. Yeah. Um, yeah, the film called The Sand Lot, which is kind of a similar theme to to Stand by Me, and that's sort of a coming of age film. It's not really that big, no one big in it, but I always quite enjoyed watching it. Uh, Super Eight, which is like a, a modern day Goonies, uh, which was really good. And a film called Millions from 2004, which was directed by Danny Boyle. And it's about two brothers, two kids basically, who find a load of money that was from a robbery or chucked off a train into a field where they happen to be playing. And they find this money and end up splashing it all themselves while always worried that the, the evil robbers are going to come and find them and end up giving it all the charity, which is quite a nice film. It was one of Danny Boyle's earlier ones. Worth a watch, but not worthy of my list, unfortunately. Um, I'm, I'm excited to find out what it is now. Yeah. There was also a couple, I thought, can I really twist this to shoot and horn them in? I thought, well, Toy Story, if Andy didn't have all these toys, then <laughs> we wouldn't be having the film, so surely he's the protagonist. I was going to twist it that far. I thought, The Phantom Menace, it's obviously the young Anakin Skywalker, but can I really put the Phantom Menace into this list on the, yes. on the basis that it's a good, I think it's good. And, you know, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Even though without that film, we don't get the rest of the start. Well, we do, but we don't, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but anyway, oh, Flight of the Navigator was another one. Nearly made it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, onto my list, finally. James said me and you probably wouldn't like musicals, Jerry. Well, there is one. Oh, I know what's coming now. I know what's coming. What do, you, coming. what do you think is coming? Oh, uh, it's got to be Bugsy Malone. No, no, no. Oh no, no. I, I'm predicting Oliver. No. Oh. You, you are both way off. Animated movie, South Park, bigger, longer, and uncut. Oh, that's on my also runs. That was yeah. on my also runs. I did not even think of that. Yeah, Eric Cartman is the protagonist of that yeah. film, definitely. Antagonist, protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> But obviously, oh, we... no, I so nearly put that on my list as well. That's an that's an excellent choice. Brilli- brilliant satire on censorship, but also a brilliantly funny film. Um, you know, just like pretty much most episodes of South Park are. It's it's better than just an extended episode of South Park. You've got great lines like "Make the sound of a giant giraffe." <laughs> and then the soldiers go, yeah. "Hey, it sounds like a giraffe dying over there," <laughs> and then wandering over. <laughs> Have you got the butt for? What's the butt for? For pooping, silly. <laughs> <laughs> and some brilliant, actu- actually brilliant musical numbers where I think at least one, Blame Canada, at least was nominated for an Oscar. It might have even won it. It was definitely nominated. The music in South Park is fantastic, actually. Yeah. There's, um, the, there is a brilliant, uh, for anyone who likes Les Miserables, which I do, there is a fantastic Les Miserables ripoff, which is just like, um, uh, one day more from Les Miserables. Um, it, the bit of Viva la Revolution, uh, and they cut to all the different characters, and then they cut in a bit of Blame Canada and so That is one of the best bits of musical I've ever seen. It, it is, it's pure genius. And I just, every time I hear it, sort of, after the opening song, Quiet Mountain Town, and oh. the stands got all of them together and they go to the cinema, five tickets to Terrence and Philip Pass the Fire, please. No! <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to watch it after this now. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm thinking about sticking it on as well but I just thought uh, not many people are going to go for that for film child protagonist but he's definitely I wish I thought yeah. of it I must say I, w- I wish it had come into my head 
Uh, next up, the Goonies. Nice. Obviously, group of children, Mikey Chunk and the rest of them. Um, their homes are under threat from a big country club that's going to engulf them or knock them down and incorporate land into country club. One of them finds a map to One-Eyed Willie's treasure and they go on a big adventure to find it. Obviously, there's bad guys who want to find the treasure as well because there always is. And Wouldn't be a film without them. No, exactly. Uh, but brilliant film, fun all the way through. Um, you know, funny, you know, just good adventure, good action. And yeah, I don't think anyone, if you watch the Goonies and aren't feeling happy by the end of it, you haven't got a soul. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. That's how I judge people. That's a good point. I'll add that to my list of people who don't drink yeah. and vegetarians, mm. um, and people who don't. And men who don't like footballs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'll add that to my list. People you can't trust. People who yeah. don't like the Goonies. Um, the final film I picked was, I did twist things a little bit here, E.T. You think E.T.'s the protagonist? It's really Elliot. It's Elliot's when story, you, yeah. yeah. No, I'm with yeah. you there. It's, it's, it's the story, it's Elliot's story. He's, he's, you know, obviously his brother and sister as well have lost their dad, but Elliot's lost his dad. He's, you know, trying to come to terms with it. He's deeply connected with E.T. You know, when E.T.'s dying, he's dying. He's, you know, he loses E.T. at the end of the film, but he doesn't really. It's just... It is about Elliot more than it's about E.T. Yeah, oh, no, I agree. And E.T. is such a fantastic film. Mm. Um, and, 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 yeah, E.T. also represents that childishness as well. So you, yeah. you could also argue, I, I, we don't know how old E.T. is meant to be. He could well be a child alien as well, yeah. for all we know. So, therefore, mm. no, great choices. Great choices, Steve. And yeah, I, and, and the, the brother and sister are sort of the older bit of childhood and the younger bit of childhood yeah. as well. You've got the, the whole lot. Yeah. And just, the, just, really. just the end scene escaping from the authorities on the bikes and, and in a really nerdish way, the way that you're hinted in both Star Wars and E.T. that E.T. is from Star Wars, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know why, in a really nerdish way, <laughs> even though I'm not in any way remotely like that. Just, I like, because obviously you see E.T.'s in one of the, the boring Senate scenes in the new Star Wars trilogy. And then, oh, course, and then yeah. he's, and then he sees toys of, of Yoda and things and goes phone home. So. Yeah. Uh, I've never even noticed that, no. <laughs> no. Um. Great geek knowledge there, though, yeah. Steve. Yeah. Great nerd knowledge from me. Don't get, don't get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. Um. I just, I'll just run through a few of the, uh, the other choices we had, kind of people mentioned on the forum as well. Um, I just want to say I, I also discounted Leon um, because I felt that uh, Leon, the professional, was still, strictly speaking, the protagonist there. I also discounted The Exorcist because I think that's about the priest's journey, although I think Linda Blair is bloody frightening in that film. Um, uh, we had we had, Bugsy Malone was mentioned a couple of times. Almost Famous was mentioned on the forum by a couple of people. Um, Home Alone, yeah, none of all of us shied away from Home Alone. Uh, I actually watched it again this afternoon because my eighteen-month-old daughter has a crush on Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> I need to, uh, I need to show her my girl where he gets stung to death by bees before we're, too long, and we're then all, completely <laughs> mess her head up. The three of us um, are trying. Spoiler alert! <laughs> sorry if anyone out there was planning on watching my girl Macaulay Culkin <laughs> gets stung by bees. Apologies. Um, but yeah, Homeland, it's, it's a great for his performance, actually. Every time I watch it, it is still quite fresh. Macaulay Culkin's child acting is really, really good. Um, and it's just a shame he became such a 
mess <laughs> afterwards. Um, Fanny Alexander was mentioned on the forum by uh, G Man MG, uh, and I need to watch that. That's on the IMDb top two fifty. I believe that's. Yeah, I only um, know that from the list. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's a thingy. Uh, what's his name? Bergman film, isn't it? Bergman film, yeah, yeah. Um, Stand by me mentioned a few times as well. Little Miss Sunshine, nice choice, mm-hmm. and Kez as well. And Kez was nearly on my list, and I actually went to see the Belgian version of, well, not the Belgian, a Belgian kind of equivalent of Kez this week, which I'll talk about in the next section. Um, a lot of people went for the Sixth Sense as well, which I don't know. If yeah. they, I don't know if they mention it because it's genuinely one of their favourite films with a child protagonist, or if it's just the probably. The, one of the most known films with a child protagonist. With one, a child. Of the, one of the most talked about films with a child protagonist. Obviously, it's it's not one of the it's films more that about you can, Bruce Willis, isn't it? Though, really, but it's not really one of the films that you can watch more than once because it's one of the films where it relies on the suspense. And once you know that Bruce Willis is a ghost. Sorry for any spoilers, but if you I, I, I can't yeah. imagine there's anyone in the universe that doesn't yeah. know it. Then, I was say it. <laughs> but you know. Once you know that, can you really watch it again? I've I've actually not seen that film because I found out the spoiler before I even saw it, and I've mm. still not because I'm, I'm just like oh, I've got to watch it at some point. I think it I think it's in the I mean, IMDb top two fifty for some reason. Um, so I am going to have to watch it, but I'm going to have to watch it for the first time, knowing the twist, and I'm I'm pretty sure that's going to ruin it for me. Uh, when we best wrap up part two here, because I'm sure it's go on and on and on. Uh, we'll be Can back. I just throw out one honourable mention that was very, very close that I think is, is very underappreciated, and that is Coraline, which is a, a really, really good kids film, and it's genuinely well made and it's it's quite scary as well. So I just I just want some appreciation for Coraline out there. Oh, good. I've done. Uh, I've taped that actually. I think it's been on TV recently or something like that. It was on Channel 4 not long ago, yeah. Yeah, I've got got it taped to watch with my little one, but I've heard that it's one of the best animations of the last 10 years, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Right, yes, we'll be back in part three after this bit of music with The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, where we... So the good, the bad and the ugly then, the part of the podcast where we review which films we've been watching this week, uh, whether it be another film at the cinema, love film, Netflix, Skyplayer, iPlayer, DVD, VHS, whichever mode of watching films we've got. I'm going to let you two start because my internet played up this week and I couldn't stream films on love films, so I've only managed to see two. Um, <laughs> two nights in a row it decided to play up. I was trying to watch Eden Lake. But I only got ten minutes in before my uh, before my internet packed up, so I can't review that for you at the moment. So, James, would you like to start off with what you've yeah, been watching this um, week? Earlier this week, I went to see The Kid with the Bike. Uh, it's a film that came out very recently. In fact, I saw it in the my local art cinema. So it's, it's not long out. It's a Belgian film, but directed by the Dardenne brothers. It's about an eleven-year-old boy in care called Cyril who is played by a non-professional actor, and this very nearly got his way onto my list already. Basically, Cyril's been abandoned by his father, 
and the film charts his attempts to find and reconnect with his dad um, and try and recover his bike that his dad has sold um, after giving him into care. He meets this uh, lady called Samantha, who's a hairdresser, and she she actually buys his bike back from some street gang and starts to weekend foster this child and turn his life around. And then he falls in with an older gang and we get, you know, the kind of act three scenario where something goes wrong. Um, it, it's very gritty and it is why it reminded me of Kez, actually. So it's a pretty uncompromising, uncompromising portrayal of life in the care system. I, I <clears throat> do some work in this area uh, and I found it a very realistic film. Uh, in a way, sometimes too realistic. We have sympathy for Cyril's situation, but Cyril is um, not a sympathetic character. And I think it's to the filmmaker's credit that they really show that he's not all sweetness and light, just waiting to be turned around. The situation that he's in has turned him into a very difficult young man. And he's very frustrating character at times. Uh, but I, th- I would say it's not a great advert for foster caring, but it's a brilliant advert for foster carers. And we see Samantha, the way she tries to connect with this child, and she does so much for him, yet all he wants is his real dad to notice him and want to be part of his life. It's a very, very difficult film at times. Really realistic. In fact, one bit of realism that, and this sounds so stupid considering I'm talking about the major issues of foster care and things like that. But one bit of realism I really liked was the fact that when the older gang member took Cyril back to his house, they actually played a real PlayStation 3 game on a real PlayStation 3 with the right controller. And so often in films, it really winds me up that they're using the wrong controller on a game system or they're playing games that don't belong on that system. Uh, that winds, And it just makes me step out of the film because I'm such a nerd about these things. But here, no, it was a PSA. He was playing Assassin's Creed on a PlayStation 3 with a PlayStation controller. And I liked that. And it just made me feel I was, I was, I could dig into this film. But I, I would highly recommend seeing it. It's a very, very depressing film. It's very difficult to watch at times, but it's so beautifully shot and it's well made. And it's really well acted by a lot of people who aren't technically actors. Uh, and so you do get a lot of them coming through in the characters. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it sounds quite interesting. What what was the title again? Sorry, I'm, it's, I'm uh, it's English it. title is the kid with a bike. The kid with a bike. Yeah, it kind of does what it says on the tin. I also saw on the forum someone said someone else on the forum had seen it, and they said it's actually there's a lot of a Red Riding Hood allegory in it. Um, and I want to go back and watch it again to try and spot the Red Riding Hood themes going on in there. All because all, all we could work out. Oh. He's wearing red most of the time. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty much all I could pick up from it. So I need to go back and watch that again. Uh, what else have you been watching this week then, James? Okay, this week. And from the, uh, from the ridiculously sublime to the sublimely ridiculous, I went to see Lockout, um, directed by James Mather and Stephen Ledger, but from an original idea by Luke Besson, which is kind of ironic as there's not really any original ideas in this film whatsoever. I don't know if you've seen the trailer. Guy Pearce plays Snow, grizzled, wisecracking, smart-ass hard man, uh, wrongfully convicted of a crime he didn't commit, and he's about to be sent into stasis uh, in a prison in space. Uh, meanwhile, the president's daughter is already on the prison, some kind of humanitarian effort, and she's 
doling out all the exposition for us, all us poor schmoes in the audience. Uh, basically, the prison gets taken over, as it always does. A couple of Begbie impersonators from Train Spotting decide to take over the prison, and Snow has to break in, save the girl, and also clear his name at the same time. I watched the trailer and laughed at it because it looks so dreadful, but I had a spare bit of time, and I thought, I'm going to give this a chance. And um, the film should be dreadful, but I think the fact that it owes a massive debt to the John Carpenter school of film rather than the Michael Bay and the Jerry Bruckheimer school of film means it just about gets away with it. I think Guy Pearce is channeling Kurt Russell, essentially, and he does it pretty well. Um, if Lockout was an episode of Who Do You Think You Are, and stick with me on this really extended metaphor here, um, about 45 minutes into the episode, there'd be a quiet moment in the records office of some provincial library, and Lockout would look at the camera with a tear in his eye and go, my dad escaped from LA. It was a, a difficult person to be around at times. He was a disappointment to a lot of people. But reading about my grandfather, Escape from New York, I'm overcome with a sense of pride. Basically, this is from the same lineage of the Escape From films by John Carpenter. This might as well be a Escape from Space Prison. Um, it's not great, uh, but I, I think Guy Pearce has opened up a new career here. Uh, the wise-cracking action hero, a bit like Bruce Willis had for a little while. Uh, he's got the, going through the same career transformation that um, Liam Neeson Wolf Puncher is currently going through at the moment. He's becoming an unlikely action hero. Uh, it's not brilliant, but it wants to be a John Carpenter film, and I can't hate a film that wants to be a John Carpenter film. I think it's much better than it wanting to be a Michael Bay or a Paul W.S. Anderson film. And do you know what? 90 minutes long, well, about right, 100 minutes long. I came out of the cinema thinking, I quite enjoyed that. I'm going to forget about it. I'm probably never going to watch it again. But it didn't feel like a waste of my money. Fair enough. I think I would only watch it because it's got Guy Pearson, to be perfectly honest with you. He's made some pretty good films, actually, if you think about it. He's And, uh, and he is very good in this, actually. He's very funny. He probably wisecracks a little too often for my... It was almost every line had a punchline. And it was sometimes just a little bit... It was like... Seriously, there's a huge prison like threatening to blow up the earth. You know, forget the jokes just for a second. Was, was, it, was there any to do with the character's surname being Snow? Um, no, there wasn't anything. There Disappoints is a me kind of straight away. There is a joke <laughs> on um, his first name. They don't mention his first name until right near the end. Yeah, you know, but uh, I like Luke Besson. <clears throat> I think Luke Besson is pure entertainment as a filmmaker. I, I wish there were more people like Luke Besson in the film industry, but it's not one of his best. It's not as good as Fifth Element. It's not as good as uh, Nikita and a lot of his early French stuff. It's not, it's not as good as Leon, um, but it's fun. Um, and it, it, it's a diverting six out of ten film. Here's another bit of geek knowledge. Fifth Element, it's got a young QPR defender Fitz Hall in it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is amazing knowledge. There we go. How on earth did you find that out? I, I just don't know, but it's certainly true. Oh my god, that is fantastic! I, I, and now I'm going to have to go back and look out for it. He's not the weird opposing with the blue hair, I'm assuming. No, I think he's just a child in the fifth element. Um, oh right, oh yeah. that's a shame. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the other film I saw this week, um, 
was a documentary streaming on Netflix UK. It's called The Most Dangerous Man in America. It's from 2009. I'll quickly go through it, but I, I find it really interesting. It's about the origins of the Vietnam War and how five different US presidents basically lied to the American public about why they went to war. It's about a man named Daniel Ellsberg who helped create the case for war in Vietnam, then visited the country and used his position to try and bring the war to an end. When that didn't work, he leaked a 7,000-page report to the press. And he faced criminal charges that would have seen him in prison for the rest of his life, basically. And Nixon really went after him. There's some really interesting recordings of conversations Nixon had with his staff about basically destroying this man. And also some really quite casual conversations about potentially using nuclear bombs to end the Vietnam War. It's really worrying to hear a man who basically had his finger on the button talking about using uh, nuclear bombs so casually. The one, uh, the one bad point about this documentary, I think, is it's actually narrated by Daniel Ellsberg. So it's narrated by the guy who the film is about. So you get some insight into him, but there's no critical overview of the actions he took or anything like that. It's basically the story of the original WikiLeaks, 90 minutes long. It kept me entertained and it informed me a little bit as well. And like I say, it's streaming on Netflix UK at the moment. Uh, how about yourself, Jerry? What have you been watching this week? Um, you're going to notice the theme here and a lot of my films are going to be off the IMDb Top 250. So this week I've been watching a couple of classics. Uh, the Good, well, Good is probably an understatement, was The Third Man. Uh, oh. Classic, uh, awesome Wells film. Um, I'm not really sure I need to go into it too much, but it's basically um, a guy who's, um, he writes trashy novels called Holly, which I found completely implausible, but anyway. Um, <laughs> He travels to Vienna uh, just after the war and he's meant to go out uh, to meet his friend uh, who's Harry Lyon who turns out to be Orson Welles but when he gets there uh, he's dead. This Harry Lyon character's dead and it turns out that he was a bit of a black market. Uh, not a very nice man, let's put it that way. Uh, ran things on the black market and he ends up being involved with the police and trying to find out what happened because things aren't quite adding up about this death. It's a classic sort of mystery. Um, there's a lot of elements, you know, missing in it that slowly get put together. Uh, the characters are really, really good. All the main characters, you know, um, there's a lot of good relationships as well between, you know, the policeman, um, between Holly and, and Harry's, uh, former girlfriend who, it's pining for him, but also they strike up a bit of a an uneasy friendship. It's just a, a great film. It was really, really good. And it's even though it's you know it's a black and white sort of nineteen forty nine shot um, on very, very limited technology, it's one of the coolest looking, most stylish films you will ever see. It's just brilliant. It's like the classic sort of film noir look. There's loads of really cool shots in it. It's just uh, you, you just have to watch it. Really, it's just a, a great, great film. Uh, yeah, I love The Third Man. Um, I saw it quite recently again. It's uh, What I do find about it, though, once you know that, if you go into it knowing that Orson Welles plays Harry Lyme and you you know that it's a great performance of his, I spent the first kind of 40, 50 minutes almost waiting for him to turn up. But in a way, it's like the whole film is paced a bit like that. The whole film is kind of bubbling along waiting for Harry Lyme to turn up. And when he does, it really kicks into life, gives one of the great speeches of film history in there. Um, and also, 
it, like you say, it is just such a cool-looking film. It's proper film noir. No, I love The Third Man. I'd highly recommend anyone watch that that hasn't. What's about the bad, then, Jerry? Um, I didn't quite have a a bad, but I did have a slightly unusual experience with I watched uh, The Silence of the Lambs again. I have seen it years ago, but I couldn't really remember much of it, so I thought I'd give it another go. And it was good, but I wasn't as impressed with it as everyone else seems to be. So it's not quite bad, but it's a sort of, I don't know, I think it might be a bit overrated. I can understand that at the time it was quite groundbreaking, but I just, I thought it was, it was good without being completely outstanding and, you know, so held up by most people. I, I don't know. I, do you I'm, think I'm, it's, do you think it's, uh, Hopkins as, uh, Lecter, which is, basically put it on the top of loads of people. Do you think it's the uh, the Hannibal Lecter performance which makes it yeah. so highly revered? Yeah, because, I mean, it is. You, you're watching him and he is just mesmerising every time he's on screen. He's just, it's just fantastic. It's one of the best sort of portrayals of a villain I've seen. But I, I found Jodie Foster to be quite annoying, really. I just found her to be a bit of an annoying character and her voice really got on my nerves. So it was a bit jarring and... and I know I've seen it before, but I could just, it was predictable in that way, but I don't know whether it's just because I can remember vaguely what happened when I watched it like 10 or 15 years ago, but it was, it was a good film, but I'm not sure it should be on, you know, the top films of all time lists because it's just not that good. It's just, it's just a good film. And finally, what else have you been watching? Did it class as the ugly as well, or was it? Yeah, the ugly. Immediately after we, we got off the podcast last week, I had downloaded for my girlfriend Red Riding Hood, which came out last year because she'd watched half of it at a friend's house uh, and she wanted to see what happened in it, basically. So I thought that I'd, you know, stuck that in front of her and she'd be entertained while I was doing the podcast. Turns out she couldn't get it to work, so then I ended up having to watch the last 45 minutes of Red Riding Hood, which was not the greatest experience of my life. Is that, is that Amanda Seyfried? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't... It's got it Jeremy Irons twi- in it as well. It looks like Twilight in a different universe. In fact, isn't it directed by the same person who directed the first Twilight? Um, I don't know. It, it's it's very Twilight-ish, well. It's why I imagine it. it, 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 it <laughs> any kind of Twilight-based film is going to be about... Yes, it was the, the director who did uh, Twilight. Ah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, it was... Well, it was all right. There was nothing, you know horribly offensive about it but it was just a bit predictable and a bit mediocre and all very teenage and you know it was the only good thing about it was that it was a bit dark and there was a bit of sort of you know grim fairy tale element to it which obviously is is quite nice in its original form but it was just really watered down and stuff and there was you know they were trying to create these sexual undertones and just didn't really work Gary Oldman's in it which I thought might lend it a bit of credibility um but even he couldn't save it, really. Oh dear! Um, uh, it's not the worst film you'll have to watch if you if you're watching films with with a with a lady friend. Let's let's put it that way. But it's not it's not the best either. Well, I've managed to watch two films this week. If you want to hear my review of Eden Lake, you're going to have to wait. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't know why I decided to put it on. <laughs> let's tease it. Yeah, let's build it up uh, for a few. Weeks. Well, it it seems to be a couple go to a lake. Um, and Michael Fassbender's in it, and it's meant to be a horror slash thriller, and that's all I know at the moment. Um, so I'm interested. If the Fass is in it, I'm interested. Mm. Okay. 
I'm uh, bored. I'm anyway, forward to hearing more. First of all, I watched Super, starring Rain Wilson of the American Office fame, Ellen Page, and in smaller roles from uh, Kevin Bacon and Liv Tyler. Um, not a bad film. Um, not the best of its type. Kind of tries to parody the, the superhero film. Basically, Rain Wilson marries Liv Tyler, who used to be a drug addict, and because of his help, she got off drugs, married him. Then she runs off with Kevin Bacon and gets um, back into drugs. Rain Wilson goes a bit crazy, becomes a vigilante superhero of his own making, and intends to win her back. Um, it wasn't a bad film. It was some funny. It wasn't as funny as I expected it to be, yet it was still quite funny in parts. I thought Ellen Page was pretty good in it. Um, but yeah, like I said, I expected it to be funnier, but yeah, I still did want to watch it until the end. Um, I think if you're going to watch, if you had a choice between that and Kick-Ass, which are, and they're kind of similar films in many ways, I'd watch Kick-Ass, but Super is still worth a watch. I think that's a fair assessment. I've, I've seen Super. I enjoyed it. I watched it before I saw Kick-Ass, actually, which I'm glad about, because if I'd seen it the other way around, I think I wouldn't have liked Super as much as I did at the time. It is funny, but there is some really odd, dark moments in it as well. Mm. And I, I think I think with Ryan Wilson involved, you're always going to get that sort of subversive element to it, though, yeah. aren't you? I mean, that's, that's kind of his, his thing. And Kevin Bacon was a brilliant bad guy in it. Yeah. Uh, I do have to... Kevin Bacon was great fun. Um, but yeah, that's on Sky Player, so if you've got access to that, you can stream it there. I also watched on Love Film, The Sphere, starring uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Sharon Stone, Dustin Hoffman and Lee Schreiber. Um, basically, they're all experts at different things, psychology, mathematics, um, biology, and they find a spaceship buried deep under the ocean, and they assume something's still alive in there. They go down there, it turns out it's an American spaceship from sort of some time in the future, and there's a big sphere in it, hence the name of the film, The Sphere. Um, and if you if you go into The Sphere, um, you come out, you kind of forget that you're in there, but you can you end up manifesting your own worst fears um, and sort of nightmares and terrors from your own mind. It was, a good, it was okay, it was watchable. But I felt there was kind of more to it. I think in part, some films I do like a bit of mystery and intrigue. But some films I don't. And in this film I wanted to know why this spaceship was from the future had crashed back at this time, who was on it, and what the sphere actually was and where it came from. You never found that out. But it's still watchable. It still builds a bit of tension in some parts. Um, and, you know, the performances are passable. They're decent enough. No, you're not really going, God, that's terrible. Yes, unfortunately, only able to watch two films this week. Um, I might struggle next week as well, because I'm in Barcelona, so. <laughs> um, well, do you like to, uh, see yeah. if they offer a, offer a film on the, on the plane? Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's it for this week's podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, James, do you want to tell the listeners what we've got in store next week? Yes. Um, next week. Now, uh, mainly because it's difficult for most of us to get to the cinema in the next week. And also because there's very little out this week, to be honest. Um, we're not going to be reviewing one main film next week. Instead, we're going to talk about the films that we're most looking forward to this summer that aren't called The Dark Knight Rises of Prometheus, because I think anyone 
who even has ever seen a film is excited about those two films. We're going to be looking at the other films that might be out this summer that we're quite excited about. And also, uh, due to the fact that I am going to be giving a speech at my sister's wedding uh, next weekend, um, I want us to talk about our triple bill next week is going to be films with great speeches in. Uh, okay, so we're going to come up with three films which have got a fantastic speech in them at some point. Um, and I'm also, uh, I know I said I'd be talking about safety not guaranteed this week. I'm going to Sundance Festival tomorrow. So I'm going down to London tomorrow to see safety not guaranteed, which has been getting rave reviews from Sundance London over the last day or two. So I'm very excited about seeing that. And I'm definitely going to be talking about that next week. And I know you mentioned it at the beginning, but where can people access Oh, us yes. And contact uh, people us. can access the podcast. If you search for the Failed Critic Podcast on iTunes, we are now on iTunes. And please subscribe to the podcast. If you like what we're doing here, please subscribe so we can get an idea of uh, that we are doing things right, hopefully. Uh, you can also find us at um, Failed Critic, FailedCritic.Libsyn. That's L I B S Y N.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at The Failed Critic. And if you want to talk about the podcast, please use the hashtag. Hashtag failed critic. That would be great. So that's all for this week then. Um, hopefully, you, hopefully you've enjoyed the podcast. Uh, if you have, please recommend us so we can hopefully get a few more listeners. Um, yes, goodbye from me. And goodbye from me as well. And goodbye from me. God has smiled upon you this day. The fate of a nation in your hands. And blessed be the children we who fight with all our bravery till only the righteous stand. You see the distant flames, they bellow in the night. You fight in all our names for what we know is right. And when you all get shot and cannot carry on, though you die, la resistance lives on. You may be sad in the head with a dagger or a sword. You may be burned to death or skin alive or worse. But when they torture you, you will not be believed to run for, though you die, la resistance lives on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.